yeah, so as you've already gathered from the Bible reading, from the songs, from everything we've been talking about so far this morning, um, yeah, I've obviously picked Psalm 23. Uh, out, of, out of all the Psalms that I could have picked, this is probably the most famous. Um, I'm sure plenty of Christians know many other, other Psalms, but um, I think not just among uh, believers, but unbelievers as well are very familiar uh, with this passage. They've, they've all heard 1 Corinthians 13 at every wedding they've been to. They've all heard Psalm 23 at every funeral they've been to. Uh, but I think that can kind of be a bad thing. So I think we get very just um, used to the words, um, blasé about it and not really realize the, the depth of it. And they just see it as this comforting thing that you read out of the funeral and that's about all that there is to it. Um, so as we go through this passage, we're going to learn that it's much, much richer and, and deeper than that. There's some great uh, theological truths for us to learn from it that uh, we sometimes probably gloss over. So I don't really want us to, to skim over these words. I want to um, dig deep into the passage to see, to see what we can learn. And, and I think the, the reason why it's uh, such a, a good psalm is because it is all about the goodness of God. I, I think that's something that we probably overlook as Christians. We're, we're very familiar with the justice of God. We know that God uh, has his law, that he's a just God, that uh, we, we, we pray for that. We pray that God would return and, and, and judge the world, that there would be um, justice done when we see injustice around us. Uh, so no one, you know, we don't really overlook that. We don't really dispute that. And, and same with the love of God. You know, we're, we're all in agreement here that God is loving. We, we all know that God has shown his love toward us in Christ. That's normally not up for debate in, in Christian circles. But I think we kind of see the love of God as just this uh, thing that God has done for us once off. He's, he sent his son to die for us. And then someday we'll get eternal life up in heaven. And that'll be, that's sort of the extent of God's love and goodness toward us. And uh, we, we kind of see it as, as very disconnected from our daily life. You know, how does God's goodness and love impact me here and now today? And this psalm is, is full of the amazing and gentle kindness of God that he pours out on us each and every day. So let's, let's start by, by going through this passage. So uh, the, the very first line starts the theme already. The Lord is my shepherd. So he already starts this uh, shepherd and, and sheep metaphor, which continues throughout the first uh, four verses of the psalm, and then he switches things up a little bit. So it's saying, the Lord is a shepherd, and we are like his sheep. And that, that sort of seems a bit familiar to me. Uh, we, we have sheep on our farm. Uh, so here's a, a picture of me with a cute little lamb right there. This is... That, that, that's right, the, the sheep, the lamb is the one on the right. Um, he's, he's still happy there because we haven't yet tailed and castrated and vaccinated him, but, you know, they're, they're not smiling as much after that. Um, but, you know, so, but we have, they have it pretty easy. We leave it, leave it in, a, uh, in a paddock for a year to fatten up, and then it goes to that, chops on a, fr- on a frying pan, so that's four quarter chops right there. It was delicious. But just had to throw that in. But, so, but the, that's not really the metaphor that the psalmist was going for, you know, Monday sheep farming. It's a, a little, little bit different here, but uh, it, it's especially different just as far as the, the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. It, it's somewhat disconnected now, um, not to say that dad doesn't work hard or anything, but, but they, they get put in a paddock. They have fences there to keep them in. That, that's, that's how they're supposed to work anyway. It doesn't always work that way. But, you know, but they, uh, they've... They've got fences already set up there. They've got water troughs that already just fill up automatically as soon as they drink from it. 
Uh, we've got 22 rifles that can take care of foxes. We've got, uh, you know, you can even get sensor-activated cameras uh, at your gate so that it can read the number plate of anyone sneaking onto your property and trying to steal, um, steal your sheep. So it, it's, it's all pretty uh, straightforward and, and sort of disconnected from the sheep, whereas uh, the life of a shepherd in David's day was uh, very, very different. It, it was an all-encompassing full-time job in which you were always there with the sheep to care for, for them making sure that they didn't wander off because there weren't a whole bunch of, of fences um, put up around, around Israel. You had to make sure they didn't wander off. You had to protect them from wild animals. Uh, you had to stay with them so there was no opportunity for thieves. Uh, you know, they would, they would even stay out there o- overnight. Uh, in, in the summer months, they would be out in the, in the fields looking after their sheep, leading them to food and water. It wasn't just simply put them in a pasture paddock and they'll be right for, for a couple of months. It, it's you have to lead them from place to place to place just so they would have food, just so they would have water, especially in their desert climate. So if you're wondering if it's an insult when the Bible refers to us as sheep, I think it, it, it kind of is. Sheep, sheep are not the brightest of animals. And yet I think it's probably a pretty accurate description of, of us sometimes, that we are extremely prone to wander, to, to wander away, drift away from the flock, to make stupid decisions... Uh, we're under threat from outside danger and in our spiritual walk, so it kind of seems appropriate to say that, that we are just like sheep who are in desperate need of a shepherd to care for us and protect us. And that, that's what Jesus saw when he was looking at the crowds of people there who didn't know him. Jesus said, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think so often uh, people say that, that uh, we, we need people, people that believe in God, they just need God as, uh, as an emotional crutch, just, just to get by. And, and I think there's part of us that wants to go, oh, no, no, it's, it's not like that at all. You know, and, and it's true that, that we, it's not the reason why we believe that, but I think sometimes we, we can be quite prideful and, and suggest that we don't actually need God, that we just believe it just because it's true, when I think the reality is we, we do actually desperately need God to get by in life. We desperately need him for all things. And yet God is the one who provides our needs. So the very next part of the passage says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I think we're used to that phrase because that's the way the the King James Version says, I shall not want. And I think a lot of the translations have tried to um, keep in line with that just because we're so familiar with it. Um, I, I think the NIV actually translates it very accurately saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So it's not about our wants, it's about our needs. And God provides us with everything that we need. There, there isn't anything that we can point to and say, God is holding out on us. If God truly provides me with my, all my needs, he would then give me this thing that he isn't giving me. It doesn't mean that he always answers our prayers with a yes. He, he doesn't always give us everything that we want. But he's still good and he still gives us everything that we truly need so that we can confidently say, we can agree with this psalm and say, I lack nothing. And as I've been uh, preparing this sermon, I've I've been trying to incorporate that type of thinking into my prayer life this this week. Um, It's it's really common for me and I know probably for all of us that our prayer life can be uh, a list of a list of requests, a shopping list that we bring to God, and that, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. It shouldn't just be that, you know. But but we are told to bring our request 
to God. Uh, but I think we can kind of had, have an attitude of, of asking for these things and they can be good things. And if God is good, well, then he should answer with a yes. He should provide me with what I want. But I've been trying to uh, yeah, cha- change my prayer life this week and, and have the attitude of saying, but God, if you answer a no to this prayer, you're still good. You still provide me with all my needs. I still lack nothing. It's still just acknowledging God's goodness in our lives and praising him for that. I mean, his, his blessings to us are, are, are pretty obvious when you think about it. We, we, we probably overlook a lot of these things that, that we have security here. We, we have safety. We have roofs over our head, financial stability. We're not in a war-torn country right now. We're not facing persecution. We don't face horrible poverty. And I think because of that, sometimes we actually lose sight of just how much God has given us because everyone seems pretty well off around us, everything's not too bad, and we lose sight of the fact that God is the one who's actually provided all of this for us. And I remember hearing the story of a, a, a preacher from South Africa. He was uh, doing a ministry to, to homeless people, and he was going through the, the Gospel of Matthew, and he got really, really worried when he got to chapter 6 uh, because they, they went to go through verses that say, do not be anxious about your life or what you will eat or what you will drink. Oops. There we go, this is the problem with using electronic page turning. Um, do not be anxious about your, your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more, more value than they? So this preacher is, is talking to, to people who have been homeless for years and he's talking about the provision of God and he was really worried about this, thinking, well, how are they going to handle hearing this passage that talks about God providing all of their needs? And yet when he read it to them, it was just obvious. They go, well, of course God is, is my provider. Even when I've been homeless, when I've only had one meal for that day, of course God was involved in that. It, it was just so plainly obvious. And I think it's, it's more obvious to people who have little than, than us who have a lot. We, we lose sight of the fact that God is our provider of absolutely everything that we need. Let's continue on. It says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So again, that, that's all about the care and the provision and the calm that comes with being led by God. And, and we're sometimes a little bit put off of this type of thing because of the uh, abuses and uh, excess of, of the prosperity gospel that suggests that God's promises guarantee health, it guarantees wealth, it, it guarantees that nothing will ever go wrong. And we know that that's, that's simply not true. But I think probably maybe we swing to the other extreme and lose sight of the fact that God is our provider, that he does care for us. The psalmist says that we're like sheep laying down in green pastures, that we're led to waters of restfulness. Uh, both of those phrases are actually saying the same thing. It's that when they're lying down in green pastures, see, if they, if they weren't very well off, if they were struggling to find food, they would eat at the green pasture and then they will wander off to try and find the next place to eat. And yet here it's saying they can lie down. They have enough to be full and they have enough to not worry about the future, that when they wake up again, there'll be more food there for them. And that's the same with how God provides for us. It's not a once-off thing where it sustains us for a day and then we have to worry about, but will he come through for us again in the future? 
It's an un- ongoing, unceasing care for his people so that we don't have to worry about whether God will provide for us in the future. The, the, the promise that the Lord is our shepherd and that we lack nothing is not a once-off promise. It will continue to be true. How good is that for our soul? The idea of not stressing about the future. Uh, I think about what people stress about. Most of the time it is something to do with the future. It's the, the, the overall plan for our lives. Where is it all heading? What am I going to do? Where am I going to work? Where will I get a house? Do I have enough money to retire yet? That's what people like stressing about, the future. But we can lie down and rest knowing God's provision and care for us at this moment is not just a once-off. And that's actually that passage that I read from before in in Matthew 6. That's what Jesus uh, gets at. He says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Okay, uh, continuing on in, in, in the psalm. Then said, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And uh, again, I think the the more accurate translation is to say that that he leads us along the right path. And that obviously does have something to do with paths of righteousness. It it does have to do with uh, going down a morally good path. Uh, But but it's a lot more than that, going down the right path. It's it's more broad than that. It's about our, our overall direction in life. It's sort of similar language to the, the first psalm that I preached on, well, Psalm 1, uh, and the, the wisdom literature of the Proverbs. It likes uh, setting things up uh, in, in, um, in contrast. That there are two different paths. There's a, there's a wise path and a foolish path, and the, the foolish path leads to destruction and the, and the wise path leads to life. And that's the path that we're going down when we are led by God, when we're guided by Him. Uh, life just tends to run more smoothly because we know that every step is directed by God where his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we see that in, in uh, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 about the, um, the Lord directing our paths. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Again, this doesn't mean nothing will ever go wrong. I think we've all had enough life experience to know that definitely isn't true. And we see that in the very next verse as well, that he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He's surrounded by evil. But it, but it, it does mean that in the midst of that, we don't fear. We don't have the same need to stress because we know the one who sits on the throne. We recognize that God is the one who is directing our path and he is in control of everything. So I don't actually know how people can cope without that knowledge, without knowing God, without knowing that God is directing every one of their steps. And I think we actually do see that in the world around us, just the the levels of panic and anxiety that, I mean, just take, for example, around election time, you know, whether it's the US election or here, um, people just in an absolute panic that the the wrong people have been voted in and we're all doomed and the country's going to be stuffed and the world's going to end and everything is terrible. And I mean, they're they're sort of right that if if you don't know God, um, then where where are you meant to find hope? And and the problem is they, they look for hope in 
the world naturally becoming a better place, society fixing itself, maybe if we just vote the right person in, then everything will run smoothly. I mean, if that's all you've got to put your hope in, then no wonder they're in a panic, no wonder there's such anxiety. But we have our hope in the only one that we should have hope in, the only one that actually has the ability to change anything, the sovereign God of the universe. So we can find hope in the God who guides us down the right path. But as I said, that doesn't mean that everything is always simple and easy. It just means that God is with us. So the very next verse says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the valley of the the shadow of death, it can also be translated as a, a valley of deep darkness. So it, it does include those who are close to death. Uh, you, you can read this psalm out to someone who is, is on their deathbed. It, it is fitting for that. But again, it's so much broader than that. See, all of us are actually included in this. All of us are in the valley of the shadow of death. So it's not saying that we're close to death, but we're in the shadow of death. And that, that is this entire world. Every one of us will one day die. We're in a world that is full of death and suffering, and it's been that way since the fall in Genesis 3. Our whole lives are spent in this broken, sinful world that, that will eventually lead to death. We're all in its shadow. No, no matter the timing, no matter how far away it is, we can't escape it. But why would we fear death? Why would we fear the evil around us when we know God? That's the reason right there. When we know God, what possible thing could you be afraid of? What do you fear? So think about it. What what is it that you fear? What is it that you like to worry about? What is it that you stress about? Things that you go to other people rather than going directly to God in prayer. What is it that... The things that pop into your head when you wake up at night. And then ask yourself, is that something that can defeat God and knock him off of his throne? Is it really something that we should fear? See, whatever it is, the valley of the shadow of death that we're going through, the evil that surrounds us, none of that actually changes the fact that God is with us, that God is the one who we can find comfort in. And and that's the whole reason why we don't need to fear. Because God is with us. Nothing is happening that is outside of his control. And if God is for us, if God is the one who's working in our lives, then who can be against us? What possible thing could come against us? What possible evil or suffering could come against us and give us reason to fear when the creator of the universe is with us? And, and not only is he with us, but he intimately knows us. We, we have a, a shepherd and a sheep relationship with him. And, and continuing on with that, that shepherd metaphor, uh, we see how God comforts and guides us. It says, with his rod and his staff. Uh, and that refers to, to two tools that a shepherd would use, uh, both to, to fend off predators and then to guide the sheep in the right direction. Now, so the shepherd's crook might not always be comfortable, we might try and wander away like sheep and then the, the, the shepherd might need to take the crook and grab us around the neck and, and drag us back. 
and that can be pretty difficult, being under the, the discipline of God, God correcting us, bringing things into our lives that cause us to hurt. And yet God is in the midst of that working. And even when it's our own fault, even when it's our own sin, God drags us back, but he does so lovingly. He does it just like the straying sheep that doesn't know what it's doing when it wanders away and gets caught in a fence or falls in a hole. It doesn't like being picked up and dragged out, but the shepherd knows what's best. And so at the end of verse 4, the, the sheep and shepherd metaphor ends. But as we've been preaching through this, this series in the book of Psalms, and I think pretty much every time we, we preach uh, through the Old Testament, we're going to be pointing out that all of these truths actually point to Jesus. That although this psalm was, was just as true for the, the, the Old Testament people of Israel as they read this psalm and, and got comfort from it, as a result of the New Testament, as a result of Jesus coming, we can see it in a whole new light. We can see an even better way in which this psalm is made true. An even clearer picture. And the perfect embodiment of God's goodness to us is revealed in the gospel of Jesus. That's where we really see that shepherd and sheep uh, metaphor come to life. And Jesus uses that same metaphor in the Bible reading that we had earlier from John 10. Jesus says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So then when we look at Psalm 23 in, in light of this passage, we see the richness of God's goodness given to us through Christ. So when we go back through those first few verses in, in light of what Christ has done, when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I can confidently say that I lack nothing because he's given me his son. Jesus has given his life for me and for you. He died for my sins. He came and died for your sins and then rose again to give us eternal life. Then Romans 8, 31, 32 says... <clears throat> What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? <clears throat> See, how could we ever become dissatisfied with God or suggest that he's holding out on us or to say that we still lack something? Can we really say that we're lacking, that we still have needs when God has given us his son and his son has come and given his life for us. He's given us eternal life when we deserve eternal death. With that mindset, when we, we look at our life and our, our wants versus our needs, but you look at it in light of one day we will die and we will either spend eternity with God or eternity separated from God, either forgiven of our sins or judged for our sins. In light of all of that, how can we say that we lack anything when God has given us his own son? He's given us everything that we truly need because we, what we truly need is salvation from God and he's given that to us. That's the green pastures that we're in. Besides fountains of living water so that we will never thirst. 
when it says he leads me in paths of righteousness or guides me along the right path. I said earlier that we don't really need to worry about the future, knowing that God is in control, knowing that God's guiding us along the right path. But the, the new covenant promises are even better than that. We, we know exactly where we're heading. We know exactly what the end goal is, the path that he's guiding us down. We know exactly what God is working towards. We know the end goal. And it says in, in that same passage in Romans 8, uh, Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That, that, that verse can definitely be thrown around flippantly to you know someone that's just going through some severe suffering and, and we just uh, throw it out there as the, the Christian way of saying, well, cheer up, get over it, you, you'll be fine. But I think we, 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 we should use this verse for people that are suffering, but, but to really take the time to look into it and, and see what it really means. And it doesn't mean that there, there isn't genuine pain and sorrow and suffering. But what it does mean is that everything that happens in your life, it says all things that happen in your life, the good and the bad, every detail, God is using it, working in your life to make you more like Jesus. That, that's the end goal, is to make us conform to the image of his son. But no, notice it, it doesn't actually say, you'll have complete understanding of why certain things happen. It doesn't promise that you'll be able to tell exactly how this type of suffering leads to this uh, conformity to the image of Christ. We won't always be able to tell exactly how God is working in our various trials. We're just called to trust in the promises of God and know that he, he is working in our trials. He is making us more like Christ, even, even when we don't understand how. I've heard it described kind of like a, a tapestry where, where you see the back of a tapestry, there's threads going absolutely everywhere. It seems a bit nonsensical, a bit chaotic. We can't really understand why all the bits and pieces are, are where they are. And then when we get to eternity, you flip over the tapestry and there's a beautiful picture. And I think that's exactly what's happening in our lives. Every little detail, can't really make sense of it, don't really understand why certain things happen. And yet when we reach eternity... The picture will be flipped, will be made like Christ. And we know that we'll make it there someday. E even though we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and we, we walk through a world that doesn't know how to escape death, we cling to Jesus, the, the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live Then just understanding the gospel really brings that metaphor in the psalm to life. But let's uh, continue, continue through it to uh, verse 5. So in verse 5, <clears throat> uh, he starts a, a completely separate metaphor. He was uh, referring to us as, as sheep at the start, and now it just kind of randomly transitions. Uh, and, and it places us in, in the presence of... Uh, of the king at his, at his banquet. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
And although now he's talking about a, a banquet before the king, uh, he's not entirely just changing the subject. It's not a, a separate psalm. It's not completely disconnected. Uh, the, the last couple of verses here in the psalm completely depend on the truth that we've learned from the first four verses about, about the, the intimate relationship between God and his people. So God shows his goodness toward us and, and makes our position clear. So, so even when it talks about the, the, um, the enemies or I think unbelievers, God vindicates his people. He proves that we are on his side by his constant protection, his provision, his presence. And I think that that can be really clear in how we respond to suffering. When, when we have joy in the midst of suffering, when we have confidence in our God, even when things go catastrophically wrong, that can be a really powerful testimony to unbelievers because they, they don't have the same worldview, they don't have the same comfort in the midst of suffering. And so when we uh, respond with complete confidence in the goodness of God, even in the midst of suffering, uh, it's, it's something that's really difficult for unbelievers to explain. And just to clarify, we, we did learn in our, our First Peter series that, that we're still waiting for God's complete vindication of his people. So it'll happen more fully in the final judgment. And again, this, this isn't just about individual instances of mercy from God. So look down in the, in the next uh, verse. It says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So it's not something that we have to chase after. We have to chase after God in order for him to be good or merciful to us. Rather, it chases us. God's unrelenting goodness and mercy, you cannot escape it if you are one of his people, if you are his sheep. You can't be too sinful to outweigh his grace. You, you can't stray too far away to get beyond his reach. You, you can't be too downtrodden from... Uh, and, and broken from suffering and the evil of this world to, to be beyond his healing hands. And I mean, we're, we're all good Protestants here. We, we know to say the right words, that we're, we're saved by grace, not by works. We all, we all know how to say that. But do we really believe that, though? Do, do, we, do we really believe that God's goodness and mercy will continue to follow us all the days of our lives, or do we actually place confidence in ourselves? Do we become not maybe not even prideful and confident in our, in our own abilities, but maybe we just get caught up looking at our own sinfulness? But when, when you sin, do you go immediately to God? Or do you actually run from God and just stay away for a little while, do a little bit of penance, wait until... You feel a little bit better about yourself and then eventually come to God in prayer once you feel a little bit better. But we need to see God's goodness and mercy as something that never leaves us. So when we're suffering, when we're sinful, when we're broken, we need to go directly to him in prayer, knowing that he's never left us. His goodness and mercy has stayed with us. And that's actually the, the, the very next part of this final verse is about God's continuing presence. It says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that, that final phrase can mean length of days. And, and, and I think obviously it does go on forever. 
but it's, but it's specifically talking about here and now that God's presence is with us here and now, not just when we when we die. Right now, we can dwell in the house of the Lord, and so the psalmist is using temple imagery here. It's about entering the presence of God. But but that's actually a, uh, it, it was pretty clear in in the Old Testament. But I think it's actually um, a topic that I've seen a, a lot of misunderstanding and, and misconceptions in the church about what it means to enter the presence of God. Uh, and that that happened um, several years ago. I was in a in a church uh, in a in a church band, and they had really really strict rules about what you were uh, what you could wear if you were in the church band. You know, it had to be, and, and it was actually quite a casual church. Uh, off the stage, but on the stage, it had to be full-length shirt, tie, full-length pants. You know, you could tell me I, I would have loved that. So, um, so no, no t-shirt, no shorts. Um, and, but their justification for it was that in the Old Testament, God had really strict rules about what the priests were to wear when they were um, coming into the presence of God to offer sacrifices. Uh, and therefore, when when we lead worship. We're taking people into the presence of God, so we need to be really strict about what we wear, even though I can't really remember the Old Testament priest wearing a shirt and tie. But, um, and that's why I've decided to, to rock my shorts today, just to, yeah. Uh, but, you know, so all, all these strict rules about the, the dress code, that, that wasn't actually the biggest problem in their theology, even though that was, you know, a bit of wacky thinking. It was, it was the false idea of what worship is and what church is and what it means to come into the presence of God. So in the, in the Old Testament system that the priests would enter the tabernacle, uh, later on the, the, the temple, uh, where, where God dwelt, and they would offer sacrifices, and they needed these atoning sacrifices in order to come into the presence of God so that God could dwell in Israel. They needed them to come into the presence of a holy God. But unfortunately, sometimes we think of church as just the New Testament equivalent of the temple system. But the temple system isn't fulfilled by the church and what we do here. It's fulfilled by Jesus. He's the one who entered the holy place into the presence of God. He's the one who offered sacrifice for our sins in his own body. So it's because of him that we have access to the presence of God. And he's always with us. Now we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So we are always in the presence of God. We don't step into the presence of God by coming into this building and singing the right songs and wearing the right things. When we step out of this building today, God's presence is still with us. We are still the temple of God. But that also means that when we struggle, when we sin, when we feel like we're on our own, at all times God's goodness, mercy and his presence is with us. You have complete access to God through Jesus, and that does not change. If you have put your trust in Jesus, if you believe that he died for your sins, if you believe that he rose again from the dead, when you put your trust in him, you have entered the most holy place. You already have direct access to the presence of God. So the question is, do we actually live like that, though, when, when we're sinning, when we're suffering? Is our understanding of God as someone who is distant? Do we believe truths about God? Do, do we, what we believe about God, do we do it on the basis of our feelings or of the promises of Scripture? 
So if we do it on the basis of our, of our feelings, when we sin against God, well then has, has God left us? Is he removed from us? Do I need to do something in order to get his goodness and mercy and presence back in my life? When life is going terribly, when everything that we've prayed for hasn't happened, when God hasn't answered our prayers with a yes, when we're suffering greatly and it feels like God is distant, do we truly believe that about God? Do we, is what we believe about God based upon our feelings or do we look to a psalm like this where we have promises from Scripture where it says that He is with us? And again, just to... To steal uh, Phil's point from last week, that's the importance of memorizing Scripture. Letting it shape our minds so that uh, our, our feelings are dictated by the truth of God's Word and His promises that He will stay with us. And those promises, they're what we all receive when we're one of His sheep, when God is our shepherd. So how do you become one of His sheep? These promises aren't for everyone, they're for His people. So how do you know that God is your shepherd? How can you say, the Lord is my shepherd and be confident in that? We simply believe you have to put your trust in Jesus. Trust that he died for your sins. Trust that he rose again from the dead. And, and that doesn't simply mean just acknowledge that Christ's death and resurrection is a true and historical fact. It means recognizing your inability to save yourself. Recognizing that we are like lost and foolish sheep that wander away. That we are in desperate need of a loving shepherd to guide us and to save us. Recognizing your complete dependence upon God and asking for him to be merciful. Ask him to forgive your sins and he will. And so back to that that passage in John 10. uh, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. But my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So if you are one of his sheep, then believe in him, trust him, follow him and he will give you eternal life that can never be taken away. God's goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, all the way into eternity. So let's, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are Lord over all. We thank you that nothing is out of your sovereign hand, even when we face great trials. We well, thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. The shepherd giving his life for the sheep. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that. Lord, I pray that we would be aware of your presence. Even as we leave and throughout this week, we would know your goodness and your mercy. We would know that we dwell in your house. That We wouldn't let feelings dictate Uh, our, our thoughts Lord but we would know the truth of scripture we would know your great promises and that we would believe them and take hold of them but help us Lord 
Lord, continue, Lord, to work in us and make us more like Christ and help us to trust in those promises of your goodness and how you're working all things together for our good. Lord, we ask this in your precious name. Amen.